Welcome to another episode of Skip and Telecast, a podcast about strategy, intelligence, and leadership. I'm Cam Mackey with Skip, and today I'm delighted to talk with Rita McGrath, best-selling author, sought-after speaker, and longtime professor at Columbia Business School. Rita has received the number one achievement award for strategy from the prestigious Thinkers 50 and has been consistently named one of the world's top 10 management thinkers. As a consultant to CEOs, her work has had a lasting impact on the strategy and growth programs of Fortune 500 companies around the world. Rita is the author of the best-selling books, The End of Competitive Advantage and Seeing Around Corners, How to Spot Inflection Points in Business Before They Happen. Rita, welcome and thank you so much for talking with me here today. Oh, it's a pleasure. So, so I'd like to start off with uh, you know the proverbial elephant in the room, which is you know the pandemic. Um, so we're you know nearly two years now into you know what can only be called the global upheaval, uh, thanks to COVID and other forces. And we recently talked to uh, Peter Schwartz, the uh, chief futurist over at Salesforce, and he said that you know across the last couple of years he's seen more uncertainty than across his fifty plus years in business. So, you know, you're such an expert, uh, Rita, in areas around strategy and especially competitiveness and what makes organizations win or lose. Why do you see that some organizations are thriving and reinventing themselves while others are declining? Well, I think the organizations that are doing well have kept their eye on the ball in terms of both customers and ecosystem relationships. And I think one of the things that the pandemic has made very clear is that we're seeing value now going from products and services in the conventional way and shifting more towards interactions and ecosystem relationships. So digitization has really accelerated that. And of course, the pandemic has accelerated all things digital. And so what you're seeing is this headlong um, journey into high uncertainty, digitally enabled situations where we couldn't even have conceived of these things, you know, a couple of years ago. And I think the companies that are not doing well are either are, I think the companies that are not doing well have either denied reality or have not invested to keep up with what's required of them now. Mm-hmm. Now you, you talk a lot about strategic assumptions and maybe that's, uh, you know, that's something I'd like to dig into. So you, you mentioned a moment ago about denying reality. Um, you know, this is something a lot of us face. Uh, so, so you know, what do you see as some of the strategic assumptions that companies on the decline are making and not revisiting? Why are they stuck in, in neutral or reverse? Well, it's because the truth's uncomfortable and <laughs> they'd prefer not to, so they don't. Um, and I could point to the European automotive industry. I could point to any company that's in oil and gas for the most part. Uh, I could point towards companies that are part of the extended you know, petroleum-fueled automotive supply chain, Um, you know, the end of something like dependence on fossil fuels does not affect everyone equally. And so if it's going to affect your company negatively and you can eke out just another three, four or five years before your retirement or before you move on to the next thing, there's a strong incentive to do that. So I think one of the things I would observe is that we unintentionally create incentives in many organizations that favor operating in the here and now over a balanced view toward the future. And I think that's a big problem. <laughs> you know, you reward people on quarterly performance and then you want them thinking about a 10-year time horizon. It's not going to happen. 
And, and then, you know, when, when the world fast forwards as it has now, like you say, this is when, when those cracks really start to show. So, so, you know, so questioning the assumptions, assumptions is important. And, and I want to understand a little bit your perspective, Rita, on you say that strategy needs to be continuous. Um, and and you, you've coined this phrase of continuous reconfiguration. Can you maybe talk about a little bit about what that means, especially relevance to how executives should be thinking now? Yeah, well, so let me spend a minute on what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean you flip-flop on your strategy and change it every day. That would be bad. <laughs> what it does mean <laughs> is that you're within the set of guardrails represented by your strategy. You're behaving in a much more agile way. So you're creating, I call them permissionless organizations, where the strategy and the goals are really clear, but the actual work is being done by small teams, typically out at the edges, who can really see what's happening, see what's going on, and make... Um, appropriate decisions at the level where the information lives. You know, many organizations today are still living with this hangover of uh, bureaucratic structures. And bureaucratic structures made a lot of sense when you were running factories, right? But what we're seeing now is a real shift in most companies to work being far more continuous, work being far more of a flow, more of a digital component to it, much less sort of a, a serial, I, I go from station A to station B to station C, and much more working in parallel. And you need a different organizational structure and a different way of working to compete in that. And so, you know, our audience, as you know, are you know folks in intelligence, whether it's competitive or market intelligence, and they're and they're you know keenly interested in how they can help their leadership, you know, meet this challenge of of making strategy more you know continuous and agile. And so, how do the intelligence needs change? Like you said, there are these teams at the edge who are maybe you know have their you know finger on the pulse, but you know a lot of companies still do the episodic reports. So, how can intelligence uh, uh, help drive some of this continuous strategy? I think being part of those agile teams can really help. Um, and so as companies discover the power of, of being more agile, they'll, they'll increase agile teams. So one of the things that um, I find with a lot of functions like intelligence is, you know, people complain about them, right? They don't pay attention. They don't make the time for us. We don't get the meetings when we want them and so forth. And I would encourage your listeners to not wait around for them, right? Go find yourself some allies from other functions, you know, from engineering or from marketing or from finance who feel strongly about a, a problem, say, or a, a condition or a signal that's weak, or they feel strongly enough about something that they'll give up a little bit of their discretionary time at work to help you think it through. And the idea would be staff that small team and make it no bigger than like six, seven, eight people would be as big as I'd want it to be. But staff that small team with enough of the talent and function and capability that you can actually produce a result, right? Some kind of result. And a great place to start is with something like uh, customers. So how are customers' behaviors changing? How are their needs changing? Um, so a great example of a company that's doing something very interesting in this space is Unilever in their personal care products division, which is a huge division. It's a $24 billion operation. Um, but they've set up a little fund, which is a partnership between the Unilever Foundry and this like, little venture fund that they've got going. And they're funding uh, startups in a number of very specific areas around the whole theme of social shopping. Mm. So how do we shop when we're dealing with influencers, right? Interactive experiences. How do we shop when we're perhaps consuming content. Maybe we consume content and never leave the, the, the article or the book or whatever, but we have a buying journey that we can begin and end right in that book. Uh, how do we shop when we're thinking about games, right? We already have 
the observation that consumers will pay for things in virtual games, maybe they'll pay for physical things in games as well. And lastly, they're looking at how do we think about group shopping, where a lot of people are shopping all at once and, and influence each other as they're doing it. Now, they're not making a huge commitment. But what they are doing is saying, I'm going to put some seeds out there, some, I, I would call them options, to explore these spaces, which today are not huge channels for us, but which could be in the future. And so I'm going to be there where, where these startups are happening, you know, where people are scaling into those areas and where we're actually able to see uh, how consumers' behavior is changing based on how they relate to each other socially in a way that might actually involve um, buying something from Unilever. And I think this is really valuable because it gets back to this theme that I was mentioning earlier, that value is increasingly going from, you know, the bar of Dove soap to the fact that I bought that soap in connection with my girlfriends or in connection with a book that I read or in connection with um, some influencer who has taught me that this is a really great thing to do. Um, and so it's, it's the values in the interaction, not just in the product. Exactly, and and that's and that's that's something that might be missed. I'll do respect to you know the innovation or new product development team if they're thinking in a product focused way, not around you know you know different you know business models, other types of innovation. So, so you mentioned Rita uh, um, about weak signals, and you know using the Unilever example. Um, you know, so how how do we as as executives or intelligence professionals? Um, you know, what, what qualifies as the appropriate decision confidence, for example, you know, this probably has to change, right? Because I think, you know, some of what you're implying here is there's a benefit towards, towards being an early mover. So how do we think about decision certainty and, you know, decision confidence in different ways? Yeah. So one of the dilemmas that the strategist, the, you know, the intelligent strategist faces is by the time you have the information you would have liked to have to, <laughs> to make a decision, uh, the degrees of strategic freedom that you have at that point are vastly reduced. So you're always in the situation where you have to make a decision before you've got all the information you'd really like to be able to do it. And so the way I handle that dilemma is I say, let's take an event which represents the landing of an inflection point, time zero. So to continue with the Unilever case, let's say that 20% of purchases are now uh, moderated by an influencer of some kind, 20%. That's a big number, right? Um, well, before that could happen, let's work backward and see what would have to be true for that event to occur. Uh, and what you're going to do then is you build a set of weak signal indicators. And you say, okay, what could I observe now? What would have to be true, you know, a year from now, what would have to be true the year after that? And what you can then do is create a monitoring system where you've got a small group of people, again, different functions, who regularly get together and say, okay, we're going to share these signals. And what I'm working on now is a concept I'm calling tripwires, okay. which is basically what you don't want to do is have to make a big, important strategic decision in the middle of a crisis, right? You'd prefer to give yourself more thinking time, more reaction time, more time to bring along the various stakeholders and shareholders and you know other, other people that need to be behind you. So imagine if you could move back that moment of crisis to a moment when you've got that kind of time. So you can have the conversations, you can put together your arguments, you can be coherent about things. And so what I would suggest people do is if this is true and that is true and this is true and that is true, so you've got maybe eight to 10 weak signals that are now all pointing you towards a common direction, create a tripwire, which is basically a, a, a statement in advance. It says, if we see all these things and we all agree that these are the data on the ground, this is the action we're going to take. 
and make that before you get right into this, the middle of the crisis and everybody's hysterical and you don't have time. So I think that's a way of making this weak signal stuff very, very practical. That's refreshing because I think that, you know, having, you know, as you say, give having as many strategic options or as much strategic freedom is important. And, but, you know, so, some of the approaches out there like scenario planning or wargaming are, are valuable, but th they might miss something like what you're talking about here. Um, and so I like this tripwire concept. Is this, is this something to be published soon or is it already out? Uh, I'm working on it now. That's okay. it's part of the, the next book I'm working on. Excellent. Okay. Well, we, we heard it here. So that, that's uh, outstanding. <laughs> um, and, and so uh, one of your other books, you, you mentioned, uh, um, you mentioned, you know, you really you know, built the book around the thesis that competitive advantage is transient. And, you know, I think, you know, that that's really, you know, that thread runs through some of your comments earlier, Rita. So, so, you know, you've talked about seizing on a competitive uh, advantage through Unilever, but how can we sense on the defense side when some of our, you know, incumbents advantages starting to erode? What are some of those weak signals or early warnings? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I've actually got a checklist, <laughs> okay. checklist that your, your listeners can use. So it's things like if you're in a consumer business, my own people don't buy my offering. Um, we're investing as much or even more, and we're not getting back the same kinds of returns. So we're sort of seeing diminishing returns to our continued investment in a business. Mm -hmm. uh, top talent is leaving, or we're not able to attract the talent that we would like to have. Um, we get feedback from the market that a competitive offering, which is cheaper, is good enough. Um, and uh, critical ecosystem partners start to drift away from us and find find other uh, alliances. So there's a whole series of things that you can look at. Now, here's the thing, though. Um, a lot of people go right into denial. And the reality of a declining business is it can happen very slowly. I mean, it often takes a long, long time before a business is, you know, definitely for sure you know, not able to, not able to grow anymore. Um, and people can fool themselves. Oh, this is just cyclical. Oh yeah, it was bad demand. And this goes right back to some very early work that was done in strategy by a very wonderful man called Ned Bowman, who was one of my professors in my PhD program. Yeah, sure, sure. And he wrote an article called Strategy and the Weather. And what he had done was he had analyzed the annual reports of a whole boatload of companies and, uh, text analyzed the letter from the CEO in these annual reports. And then he mapped that text analysis against um, how the company had done that year. And what he found was that when the company had good results to report, it was all about the excellent management team, the fact that they really got ahead of the competition, the fact that they had the best staff, that they'd really made some really smart acquisition moves and so forth. And when the results to report weren't that bad, it was, oh my God, it was tornadoes and thunderstorms. It was, you know, the supply chain was disrupted. We had this unexpected tsunami happening. In other words, when things were going well, everybody took the credit. And when things were going badly, they blamed it on the weather. And so, I, you know, it's funny when you look at it, but I think for your listeners, you know, it's really important not to confuse your preferences with your predictions. And I think this is a trap we all fall into. Like, I've got a future I'd prefer to be in, right, than the possible futures that are very unpleasant looking to me. But that doesn't mean that's what's going to happen. Right. And, and so that, I mean, that really is kind of the crux, right? That, you know, even with all the great data in the world and, you know, all the amazing machine learning algorithms out there, I mean, ultimately, there's this critical human element and, and, you know, we, we see it, you know, companies are spending a huge amount of, of money and time on all things technology and analysis, but, but, you know, I have a concern that in some ways strategic decisions are maybe being made with, with, you know, not the same rigor or the same thought. Yeah. 
So do you oh, see yeah. that happening? Oh, definitely. Definitely. You know where you see it the most is anything called innovation. Um, and, you know, I, I hear this all the time, which is innovation leaders get told, here, go innovate. But then they're not given a budget. They're not given a staff. They're not given dedicated time. They're, they, they have trouble getting on people's calendars. And let's say, you know, through some miracle, they actually start to produce results. Um, you know, the company gets into trouble, people get busy and they start looking around for something to cut and then they get rid of that function. So the, the innovation function you know, when you think about it, it should be handled with the same degree of rigor that you would handle anything else. It should be handled as rigorously as the quality function or the accounting function or the compliance function. And yet uh, most companies don't treat it that way. And it's back to this problem of, you know, I have something I'd have to give up today because I'm investing for an uncertain future and I don't want to give it up today. Yeah. And have you seen examples of organizations, Rita, that that are you know, transforming how they make decisions, whether it's through technology or, you know, through the tripwire system. But, you know, are, are there some some positive examples that you could share? Oh, absolutely. So I think one really interesting one is Fidelity Personal Investment, um, which over the last 10 years has gone from being basically a non-existent player in the personal finance space to being one of the dominant uh, players there. They're, they're up to like 3 billion, I think, in assets under management. It's huge growth. And they've followed this this principle of permissionlessness, which is we're clear on the goals, we're clear what we want to achieve, but we've got these teams now. Um, so take a typical organization, right? They've got 100 people, you know, every person has 10 or 12 or 15 things on their plate. They're not all the same 10, 12 or 15 things. So there's this huge amount of coordination that has to happen. And the work happens sequentially, right? So it maybe starts off in product development and it goes to engineering and then maybe it goes to marketing and marketing gets it sort of like the tail wagging the dog and says, wait a minute, we can't sell this, right? Instead, imagine re reimagining all that and saying, we're going to take every skill that we need and we're going to make sure our little team, this is the agile team I was talking about before, uh, has every skill that they need. And so everybody who could have a veto is on the team, <laughs> right? And so you can make decisions without worrying about somebody down the road later popping out of the woodwork and saying, oh, no, 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 I don't buy into this. And so it just it speeds things up. It gives you more confidence and it allows you to be a lot more, um, I mean, the, the term people use a lot is agile. Um, and and it, that gets misunderstood a lot. But the way of working that's agile is actually um very useful. And it's got some basic principles, right? So don't give people a huge long laundry list of things. Give them one specific thing. So in the case of this bank, a specific thing might be, let's make sure that how we understand a customer's identity is consistent, whether they're on the phone, at a computer ter terminal, in a branch, or in an ATM, right? Let's make sure that identity is consistent. That's all this team is going to worry about for, say, two weeks, right? And they're going to come to a recommendation. Well, you're getting faster feedback, you're making smarter decisions. You're actually breaking these big, humongous problems down into pieces. And it lets you just move with a lot more um, speed than, yeah. than you can if everything's got to kind of go up and down some kind of hierarchy. And, and that really resonates because it's the, you know, there's this phrase I love, you can't let perfect get in the way of good. And, and that really, you know, speaks to the agile methodology, right? That it, it's, you know, moving it a little bit forward every day at a time. So mm -hmm. that, that, that really, you know, feels like a smart approach. I, I want to pick up on something you, you mentioned a moment ago about innovation. You were talking about the function being, you know, it, you know, you need to carve out time, budget, space, and you know, thought for it, just as much as accounting or, or sales. 
So in, in our community of competitive intelligence, there's um, a little bit of an identity crisis where sometimes we support the, you know, the head of strategy or the CEO. Sometimes we support the marketing function or sales, sometimes innovation. And, and you know, as you know, organizations can, can quickly slip into silos. And, and as, as you know, growth becomes using the Unilever, Unilever example, not just product driven, but you know, there's so many different growth levers to pull here. You know, how do companies start to conceptualize how they gather data, analyze data, make recommendations, identify weak signals? Because some, some, in some cases, read it really feels like it's done in silos that where there's not as much agility or communication as we'd like. So have you seen any models or any practices there you could recommend? Well, I think companies like um, Netflix and Amazon would be, you know, examples where, you know, they pick up on the weak, weak signals and then they empower people, although that's not a great word, but they, but people are um, authorized, you know, there's not, there's not this requirement for permission right. um, and the control mechanisms are really different, right? So people go to work at Netflix because at a youngish age, they're making decisions that in any other media company, they'd have to wait 10 or 15 years to make. Um, so you do you do see that. I think this um, this this core concept of, of agile teams working you know in a in a different way is starting to become more popular. People are now seeing the results of it, and so you see firms like uh, W. L. Gore has been doing this forever. Uh, DSM in Europe is another one that I could point to. Mm-hmm. One of my favorites is a company called Klockner, which is a metal services producer in Germany, okay. uh, who started their digital journey probably seven or eight years ago by now. And they've really taken this very traditional German bureaucratic company and turned it into something that can actually operate digitally much more fluidly than they had before. So there are examples of it. Um, so what's required? I think it's it's helpful to have senior leaders on board, but that's not necessary. And I think this is something that people get very hung up on. And I'm astonished, by the way, you know, I go all, I mean, I work with C-level people all the time and I'll hear from them. Oh, they won't let us. And I'm like, well, you're the C-suite. Like, who, who right. is that? Oh, the board, the shareholders, the whatever. And I'm like, if you can't make a decision, like, how do you expect somebody seven or eight layers down from you to make a decision? Sure. Um, see, I think we have to get rid of them thinking, you know, that mm-hmm. sort of, um, because because you can do this tomorrow. Like, with especially in COVID, right? People are easy to reach now. They're not on airplanes. They're not out of touch. You know, reach out to a few fellow travelers and say, hey, you know, I'm very concerned about call it X. Let's say at Unilever, I'm very concerned about this notion of contextual shopping. Like I buy a bar of soap because the leading lady in a novel that I'm reading on my Kindle is using that particular bar of soap. So I initiate the purchase and I conclude it and I pay for it and I never leave my story. Right. How do we how do we make sure we're in that world? And so maybe that's something that you were working on and you could get a group of you know, three, four, five people who are interested in that to do a little working session on it. And I've seen that work um, very well. And then if you produce successful results, and I can almost guarantee you'll do something that's different from what the organization typically would have done. So you're producing a successful, interesting result. It can then spread. So you don't have to wait for them to be on board before starting. And I strongly recommend that. And that really resonates because I think the you know, there's this argument that so many functions have, certainly not just CI, about wanting a seat at the table. And and ultimately, you're, you're right. You know, it, it's, uh, it's it's a lot easier to, to take this grassroots roots approach, Rita, that you're advocating for here rather than, you know, getting time with the CEO and hoping that, uh, you know, that they will embrace and push your new initiative through the organization. It's it's wishful thinking. So your, your approach yeah, feels much more modern. Wishful. 
Yeah, not only is it wishful thinking, um, you have to remember the CEO has a lot on their plate, right? (laughs) They're running a business. They're under pressure from investors. They're they're being watched every second. It's a lonely job. Who do they even talk to? And you're just one more bloody thing on that plate. And people forget that, right? So to you as the professional working in this area, this is the most important thing you're going to do all year, right? To them, it's one of a laundry list of a hundred things people want them to pay attention to. So even if you get the ear of the CEO, that's not a guarantee anything at all is going to happen. Uh, In fact, in, in many cases, it's really dysfunctional. I've got the CEO of a very large global branded company, I won't name them, but um, who has asked for a meeting with me. So this is not me saying I'd love to meet you. This is this person asking for a meeting with me. And it's been rescheduled eight times since October. And it's a half hour. Wow. (laughs) You know, so and I'm thinking to myself, there must be a sense that this half hour is going to be incredibly meaningful because it hasn't been canceled, but it it hasn't been canceled. Right now. And I know, and I'm fine with it up to a point, but it's like, even if we got that half hour, like what, what sea change in the company would a half hour with me be able to accomplish? Exactly. Exactly. Well, it's, it's, again, it's many companies still do have that mentality that, that everything has to start at the top in order to get done and get approved. And, and, you know, probably, you know, where you began, the companies that is maybe is perhaps a, a symbol of decline, right? Where, you know, the decisions are someone else's job, not mine. Well, yeah. And if you look at companies that have fallen from lofty purchase, um, and I'll use General Electric as an example, right? That was a company that was famously, you know, you make your plan, you make your numbers, you have the playbook, the CEO is like an emperor, you know, rides around in a helicopter with two jets. And and, I mean, you know, very clearly an organization where every head was turned toward the office of the CEO. And as Lou Gerstner very famously said years ago, he said, well, if everybody's face is turned to the office of the CEO, what part of your anatomy is facing the customer? (laughs) That's great. I haven't heard that. That's fantastic. And he, he did a great job at IBM. So mm-hmm. <laughs> clear, clearly he speaks with some authority on that. <laughs> well, Rita, one last question before you uh, uh, we let you get back to uh, talking to CEOs of great companies. Um, so, you know, we live in this peculiar, wonderful age where, you know, we can read a book on Kindle, like you say, and, and uh, the main character buys a bar of Dove soap, then we can go order it. And, and there's a lot of data that lives behind this. And, you know, there's some benefits to us as consumers and certainly to businesses for new value propositions. But, you know, there's a growing discomfort, especially from the consumer perspective that, that uh, you know, our data is being used in, in ways we're not comfortable with. Now, are you worried that this, you know, growing consumer backlash might have uh, implications for companies building their business models around consumer data? Oh, yeah. Oh, and it should. And it should. I mean, the trouble with regulations and rules is they always lag the phenomena, right? And and this is the case with anything institutional. So if you think about the movies, you know, when moving pictures were first invented, nobody knew what a movie was. And so what they did was they, they staged plays, theatrical plays, and filmed them. And that's, that's what, what a movie was. And it took about 40 years for us to discover, wow, with a movie, you could actually cut it up after you've recorded it. So you can have the same scene, you know, you can record everything that has to take place on Studio A in one day and then mix it up later throughout the movie and, 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 and. If you take something like uh, smoking, um, the, you know, the tobacco companies were way ahead of efforts to legislate, you know, health, health 
in, 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 in what they could do and what they couldn't do. And I think we're in the same place with the power of personal data. Um, I think this use of personal data, selling it to third parties, having tracking take place for every micro moment that you uh, have, I think it's, it's exceeded our ability to conceptualize and uh, appropriately legislate it. Um, I believe that we will see a backlash. I've written about this very publicly. Um, and I think it's appropriate. I think the way that our data are being used is in many cases vastly inappropriate. Uh, and there, you know, it's it's a it's one of those places where capitalism really fails and you need government and you need regulation because it's the kind of problem where everybody's affected a teeny little bit and the the benefits are very concentrated. So these data companies um, are reaping all the rewards and the cost to any of us individually is relatively small. Even if they were to pay us for our data, the 250 or whatever it is that Google earns from me every day because, you know, they, they turn me up in a Google search, you know, to Google, to me, it's not 250, you know, it's not a big deal. To Google, multiply that over millions and billions of people and it adds up to a lot of money. So I think we've got um, a market failure in the case of personal data. And eventually, I believe that will be corrected. Excellent. And I'm sure it'll be lots of fireworks along the way, though. Um, this is a, there's a huge ecosystem, you know, making money off this data and lots of uh, innovation, good and bad, you know, getting plowed into it. So it's, uh, I expect it to be a pretty contentious battle. Um, Rita, thanks so much for joining us. Any, any parting thoughts for our audience as they uh, look at their 2022 plans and think about how they can uh, be the best stewards of their leadership on uh, strategy and innovation and marketing? Absolutely. I think the encouragement I would give you is figure out what your scope for action is and, you know, find those allies, get moving on something, create reality around a good idea, and people will be inclined to follow. Love it. Rita McGrath, thanks so much for joining us. We will provide links to all of your fantastic books, which we can't highly enough recommend. And we look forward to hearing more about Tripwires. Thanks for thanks, joining thanks. us. Thanks. Thanks so much. Lovely talking to you. Interested in continuing the conversation? Skip and Telecon is where leaders come together to learn CI best practices and connect with a trusted community of peers. Hear from great organizations like HubSpot, Prudential, Hershey's, and Abbott Labs and get Skip certified at one of our highly rated workshops. Visit skip.org to learn more and reserve your seat for Intelecon today.